Thanks for joining us for another edition of Life Sciences and Biotech CEOs. Over our last few editions, we've been focusing on founders and companies who are working to overcome the three biggest bottlenecks in healthcare innovation. As we've said, technology's helped us better identify targets and the therapeutics to attack those targets. But the bottlenecks come in other places. They come in terms of the delivery of those therapeutics. That's where often uh, the safety issues lie. And then also in the manufacturing of those therapeutics at scale for trials, but then especially for widespread availability uh, once the therapeutic is approved. And finally, as the field gets more crowded, identifying appropriate patient uh, participants for trials has become ever more difficult, extending the time to completion and therefore the time to uh, a drug actually hitting the market. Today, we're gonna address the issue of improving the efficiency of those clinical trials. And our guest is Ian Strug, who's the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Virgo Surgical Video Solutions. Virgo provides the leading cloud video capture management and especially artificial intelligence analysis platform for endoscopic medicine. Originally from Massachusetts, just outside Boston, uh, Ian received his undergraduate degree at Vanderbilt and did his graduate work at George Washington. And prior to co-founding Virgo, he worked in management consulting and health IT at Epic and also at the advisory board company. Ian, I understand that the uh, uh, that you met your co-founder uh, while you were both students at Vanderbilt. How did that connection yeah. ultimately lead you to founding a company together? You know, well, first of all, thanks, Tim, for having us. And I think the way you really um, rolled through those three marquee bottlenecks uh, is central to our mission. And although I know we're here to speak specifically about patient recruitment and the work we're doing there, uh, given our focus in gastroenterology and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, those being diseases that are treat to symptom right now as opposed to treat to cause, uh, we keep that top of mind in everything we do. But, uh, you know, Matt, Matt Schwartz, our CEO, and I go way back. Um, we met uh, We met at Vanderbilt in 2006 both pledging the same fraternity. Fraternities aren't so popular anymore in the, the social environment. Um, frankly, I don't know if I would join one today, but uh, I have to say that I had an absolutely wonderful experience uh, socially at Vanderbilt and has created what have proven to be uh, likely lifelong relationships, as well as a network of people that I can consistently rely upon. Um, you know, I'll be the first one to admit that Matt was always the kind of weirdest guy in the room. We, he was a little bit different from the rest of us in our pledge class. He was also the smartest. Um, and I, I say that uh, with with full respect to him and all, all due respect to my other pledge brothers. But he was this, he was one of the smartest guys around there too. And we all kind of knew it. Um, there was I'll always something, something about that. Right. Yeah. And his GPA proves it, um, especially in comparison to mine. So, um, you know, he was a biomedical engineer, which... Um, of course, was was considered the most difficult major there at Vanderbilt. I uh, went out and captured kind of, I would say, a Buya Bess, a grab bag of degrees out of liberal arts and sciences. I was uh, I got a bachelor's in English and a bachelor's in history and a bachelor's in poli sci. 
took a lot of classes, which I loved. And um, like we spoke about a few weeks ago, I think that experience really learned, taught me how to think through problems um, as compared to any specific given subject matter expertise, but uh, really taking stock of the landscape within which you're living and uh, being able to apply some logic to that. Uh, to be honest with you, Matt and I really only started getting close our uh, junior year when we were both on the executive board of, of our fraternity and we both ran for president and it went to a runoff and he beat me. Um, <laughs> so I've been now, you know, Robin to Matt's Batman for the better part of two decades. <laughs> and um, I think it's become a relationship that I know it's one I'll never forget. Um, it's one that uh, I cherish dearly. I love him like a family member. Um, I don't know where I would be without him. And I, I think you probably say the same thing about me. But where our relationship really converged was after college when we both started working in healthcare. He was in product management in San Diego. I was at Epic. And as a result of our jobs, we both had the latitude to see each other a lot on the weekends and travel and kind of keep up that college lifestyle. And so as it turned out, when people were trying to get together on the weekends, Matt and I were always able to we ended up in the same places and started becoming closer and closer friends and our friendship really blossomed after college um he's always been doing weird entrepreneurial things you can probably see from my resume big firm consulting um i've taken a far more risk-adjusted approach to my um career and didn't really consider entrepreneurship at least not in tech as an eventuality i was really on partner track and was going for that and very happy with with that lifestyle um, and then one day Matt started talking to me about this idea about how difficult it is to get video off of minimally invasive surgical applications. And the surgical application in question was actually the, the Da Vinci robot of which he was a product manager. And so when I heard that he was having difficulty obtaining just a video stream off of what is largely considered the most high tech surgical instrumentation available globally, it started to become a head scratcher. He asked me to canvas my customers, which were typically large academic medical centers, to see what they were using to capture this kind of media. Mm -hmm. And what I radically found out in no time at all was, of course, everything x-ray related is recorded, DICOM files managed for 30 years that way. Everything gets stored, CT scans, MRIs alike. It's all there, it's indexed. It might be expensive, but it's there. The infrastructure has been available for decades. Video? out the back door. The notes are written by memory oftentimes. Still image capture has kind of become best of breed. And so we recognized that there was either, there were a couple things going on. Either there was no market to be made because other people have tried it and failed, or there was a market to be made because it's actually a need, but the technology available in the marketplace was not sufficient to meet that need at the time, which led us to create Virgo, introducing cloud services into the game high-end, high-fidelity compression and streaming, which now allows for any gastroenterologist, endoscopist writ large to record everything they do in 1080p, high definition at scale, saved securely in cloud storage in an encrypted fashion. Um, and all of this happens at an operational expense to the organization. And that's really an advancement uh, due, to, due to cloud services. But that's really how we all got started, um, you know, Matt, and Matt saw that I was working in IT. He was on the product side, needed some, a little bit of subject matter expertise. I kept, kept on holding him at arm's length for a long time, uh, saying, I'll consult for you, but I'm not doing this full time. And we were at a wedding 
and um yeah we were having fun at a wedding and he basically got me in a corner and said i'm gonna be the ceo of this and you're gonna be the whatever else of it and yeah. that's it so we're going to new york and we're we're doing this company and that was it okay so tell me briefly give me a, a summation of uh how virgo works yeah so Virgo is what we consider an Internet of Medical Things platform, so an IOMT platform that relies on small footprint hardware. I have a demo unit here, which is okay. a, a Linux-based supercomputer, mini computer, which is networked, connected to the Internet, which is then, of course, arbitrated through front-end software that you log into through the web. You can think of it like an Apple TV or even at this point, an Xbox or a PlayStation. Anything that you have in your home that's physical, connected to a network that you manage through software, IoT. Ours just has a little M because it sits in the medical field. So what our device does is it can connect to any imaging modality with a video output that has a moving image. So we're talking in endoscopy, of course, your endoscope, intestinal ultrasound, um, endoscopic ultrasound, fluoroscopy, things like that. What we're able to do with this device is, quite frankly, rip the video stream from that peripheral in real time and stream it to cloud storage while the procedure is taking place. And what that allows us to do is provide for high-end videography available to the end user through our software immediately after the case has taken place. Now, additionally, we do have capacity and we run AI chips on our devices. We also run a lot of artificial intelligence in the cloud. So at this point, our focus with respect to artificial intelligence development is what we call on the edge or in the cloud in a post-processing capacity. So unlike Medtronic GI Genius today, which is servicing polyps in real time on the screen for the physician, the artificial intelligence that we've chosen to build is really more for workflow enhancement to help the physicians better understand the, the procedural work that they have performed, as well as segment out those cases and put them in special places for different end users within the healthcare system that allow them to meet their, their jobs needs. So for example, we're able to do things like quality metrics calculation, um, diversification of the types of patients you're seeing, which would help someone who's concerned with quality, right? Um, we're able to also, as I'm sure we'll allude to, is identify patients in near to real time uh, that are exhibiting likely eligibility for clinical trials. Those patients are then put in a specific workflow for a clinical research coordinator whose charter is to recruit patients at that site for those clinical trials, which is heretofore a nearly impossible task in IBD. Um, so quite frankly, uh, to sum it up, it's very simple. Hardware connected to the internet, which sucks up the video feed, streams it to cloud storage. By the time the physician takes her gloves off, washes her hands, and gets back to her workstation, the video is available for her to review. We also, the last thing I'll mention is probably our, our most exciting feature um, is auto procedures, which is artificial intelligence that we patented that can recognize the start and stop of a procedure. So when that's turned on, there is no workflow inhibition whatsoever to the folks in the procedure room. Everyone already has their hands too full. So when they turn that on, they insert the scope and introduce it to the patient, video recording starts. When it's fully withdrawn and set aside, it stops. You don't get any faces, you don't get any armbands, it just records everything longitudinally, places it chronologically in your video library, and you never had to do anything. Okay, so are there any HIPAA issues here? Um, 
Of course, HIPAA, GDPR, uh, large kind of private uh, patient privacy concerns are, of course, top of mind for us. Uh, we've taken those things incredibly seriously. And so one thing that we ensure is that all video recording that takes place is with the patient's consent. Uh, so patients always consent to video recording before they um, are sedated for their procedure. They are, of course, allowed to not consent to that. Um, that said, what we have also benefited from has been the ubiquity of still image capture. So in the specialties within which we work, still image capture has been best of breed for 30, 40 years. And you've already had to consent for that. Additionally, at many endo centers that you might see in the academic landscape, they've had kind of mainframe video recording. They'll record this, they'll record that if they think you're going to be a great candidate to show something on a research project or something. So if you were to go to a major academic medical center, you'd have to be hard up to find one that whose consent didn't already say you might be video recorded. Uh, but you are, of course, able to not do that. Now, something that we are also really passionate about is the ownership of our data. So our customers retain ownership of that data asset. We are not leasing it back to them. Frankly, they are leasing it to us. So we can use that data to continuously improve our product. But we truly believe in the central concept that the patient relationship should be purely between the caregiver, the care treatment team, and the patient. And that a third party arbiter owning data in between the two only creates strife and friction. So at the end of the day, the data is owned by the providers that use our, our platform. So they can do whatever they want with it. And we are in no capacity whatsoever to tell them, you can't delete this, you can't delete that. Oh, we want you to save this. That is not within our charter. Nor are you in competition with them as a result. Right? Correct. Okay. Correct. So how does Virgo fit into? a typical enterprise healthcare system? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And it's, of course, when it comes to business development, the, the longest road to hoe in the startup world, right? I think um, the, the sales cycle or the business development workflow, so to speak, of getting an enterprise relationship with an academic medical center or a large health system, um, frankly, kills a lot of startups because you don't expect to have to need a seed round that will last three years, but sometimes it can take that long to do a deal. I mean, we've done large academic enterprise deals that have taken me the better part of the entire lifetime of the company only going live in the last few months. Um, some of the first organizations I spoke with and, and have been continuously speaking with, they just went live uh, in Q1. And wow. you know, I have, I have gray hair now from that, but it's worth it. And so, you know, a couple different perspectives to touch on at first, of course, you need to have an audience with the people that matter. And what I've learned uh, working in the clinical space where my management consulting experience was largely in administrative and financial areas, revenue cycle management, corporate finance, M&A, things like that. Um, the clinical world as it relates to adoption of clinical tools is highly relationship centric and tiny. Um, the number of people that matter, it's a very small number. and those people are very much gatekeepers, but largely have the best interest of the industry in mind and really want to support products that are worth using. Um, so the first thing you need to do is make a good impression on the right people. And I think for me, the something that I, I learned at Deloitte was that, you know, 
building a career into a, into the partnership at Deloitte is, is also relationship-based. You need to find the partners that matter that can bring you to the top. There are thousands of partners. Right. Some of those partners will never help you. So what I found was this very similar. You need to find the key opinion leaders that are interested in your technology for the right reasons. And from there, exploring the different options to both bring the product in the door and then ensure that it provides value. And frankly, just working your butt off. Um, this is a sweat equity game. Um, there's no amount of financial modeling. There's no amount of statistical analysis. There's no amount of lead generation or targeting softwares that you can use that will land you a deal that gets you on every single scope at some of the largest medical centers in the country. That is sweat equity. It's meeting people and it's getting on your hands and knees and fixing it when it doesn't work. Our first enterprise customer was Northwestern Medicine. And uh, they were kind of dropped in our lap because they needed a ubiquitous recording tool set for an NIH grant that they had received to evaluate um, the efficacy of cold center polypectomy and gastroenterology. And so um, I was able to get in touch with Dr. Sri Komandori at Northwestern, who's on our board now. He's been a tremendous supporter of ours. Um, he's also the chairman of the um, AGA uh, Technology Committee, which just recently launched its own venture fund. So he's very well connected and very interested in technology phenomenal gastroenterologist in person. Um, he, he's hard on us, but I also consider him a mentor. And um, he needed our tool set. And frankly, it wasn't quite ready for prime time, but he said, we need it now, bring it in, let's see how it works. And so we did so. And um, I was the only person from the company in Chicago, chose not to move to San Francisco because we were able to land Northwestern. And I basically worked from the lobby of Northwestern Medicine for the better part of a year. Um, you know, every couple of hours, oh, this device went offline, going up there, getting in the procedure room, splicing it together, changing out the hardware, running to the Best Buy on Michigan Avenue and buying HDMI cables. I mean, that's what we had to do. I mean, we've run out to Fry's Electronics in probably 10 cities uh, trying to find cables that wouldn't burn out, um, swapping out devices. In the early days, everyone that we onboarded was trained to physically build a device. I actually have a Gen 1 device. It's one of our Gen 1 devices. These are more or less injection molded with a chipset inside. We all put these together ourselves in our office. And part of onboarding was getting out the soldering iron and showing us that you can, that you can do it. So again, it's sweat equity. And so it was there continuously to improve the product, listening to the customer being the number one thing right? Listen to the customer, tell them what they need, tell, let them tell you what they need to see. And again, you know, you do have to ensure that you consider all those things, data points and you discard some, but retain most. Um, but it was largely based on demonstrating to them that we had their best interests in mind and that we were trying to build a business that would sustain itself because it provides value. And when we have partners that help us learn how to provide value, that relationship continues to expand. They continue to be our kind of marquee institution with whom we work. We're on every single end of scope that they own, and we're continuing to broaden that relationship as they acquire hospitals throughout um, greater Chicagoland and Illinois. And, and we're really proud uh, to consider them a, a very heavy end user. Um, but you also have to get, let yourself get pushed around to an extent. And I don't know if you want to talk about pricing and pilots, but uh, that's definitely something I have a perspective on in the early days too. If, if, yeah, if that's let, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. Um, so one thing I feel really passionate about is 
kind of moving against the grain when it comes to the notion of pilot programs. Uh, pilots are where startups go to die, and specifically in healthcare. Now, that is not to say that physicians, especially when you're providing them with a new product that they might rely upon to improve their standard of care, that isn't to say that they don't deserve to give it a shot and discard it. Not at all. Uh, but pilots traditionally have really been very one-sided, and they require zero skin in the game from the end user. And what that leads to is a few problems. One is they might just never use it. And so when you check in with them six months in, they say, oh, we need another six months. But what maybe the operators on the other side didn't do was implement really strict KPI reporting requirements to say, actually, we got the data that shows that you're using it. You're lying. Or you aren't thinking about this the same way we are. Um, so you can have this lack of end user behavior or engagement because, oh, it'll be there. It's a pilot. We'll get to it. And, and they don't. The whole point is to give you time back in your day, which you don't have right now. So you're not going to find the time unless you integrate it into your schedule. The other problem is, well, I've had it for free. I should still have it for free, right? Well, they're willing to give it to us for this long. I see the value in it at $0. But as soon as they see the value at $0, anything above $0 is too much. And so what we've been pretty successful with, and I'm really proud of, I mean, I'm sure we're not the first people to, to do this, and I hope we're not the last, is what we did in the early days, and we'll still do at certain locations, is we'll implement uh, what we call an initial use period, which is my way of going to sleep at night <laughs> by not calling it a pilot, um, but it's also risk-adjusted, where what we'll do is we will actually charge them for a one-year enterprise license up front, and we will hold those dollars in escrow. And if they cancel the contract with, within 180 days, they get all the money back. If not, we just credit it towards future use. So it's just all, well, they already paid for it. It still feels like it was a free pilot, no, no sweat off their back, but they get all the money back at six months if they choose to discontinue service. That allows us to have a little bit of um, you know, risk adjustment on our end to support the product. But it also proves, it also helps us really generate that kind of buy-in from the customer that, okay, well, if we're not going to get this money back, we need to be measuring it. We need to have those two-week KPI readouts. We need to have someone on staff trained to maintain the product day one. We need to let Virgo in the door and have them sit and shadow with us whenever they want to, to make sure that they're being a fulsome partner as well. And that's been really helpful in our ability to expand and access organizations that traditionally, if you have a box that looks like this, it's really hard to get into Cleveland Clinic or the Mount Sinai's or the Brigham and Women's of the world. But again, when it comes to the types of people that you are, the goals of your organization and the way in which you're trying to protect risk on both sides, uh, it's it's really comforting to know that those doors will open. That's great. And and I think it's true across so many businesses. I, 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 I'm sitting here thinking about the old uh, Jack Nicholson line, I don't try out. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So, so how? Let's talk about patients for a minute, and then get into trials. Okay. How do phys physicians use Virgo to directly enhance patient outcomes? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. So there are a number of different value propositions here, and they continue to expand, especially as we drive deeper into the pharma development world. And we're seeing all these novel ways that they're starting to use the tech. 
but in a kind of bread and butter Monday afternoon at the Endo Center downtown Chicago. It can be used in a number of ways. One is just straight quality management. It was the colonoscopy or the upper endoscopy performed pursuant to standard. And if not, we have to bring that patient back in and, and unfortunately do it again and rectify that. And so it's somewhat post-processing. It's not something that the patient might see directly, but it does ensure that the provider behavior is at the level the organization expects across the board. When you think of organizations like Cleveland Clinics of the world, um, especially those that which have experienced tremendous growth through the, what, 400% year-over-year M&A activity we've seen for the last almost decade, um, you have a you have a shingle that says Cleveland Clinic. And when you're downtown Cleveland, yeah, those are all research physicians. But as you start seeing these shingles go up in greater Cleveland, where heretofore they have not been an academic clinician, they need to ensure that they are practicing at the same level of the clinicians in Cleveland that were brought in as academic appointed physicians. And so a tool set like ours allows for that kind of remote monitoring, frankly, and that retraining. A more salient use case is for referrals. Um, so for example, if you're a patient that has unfortunately um, requires colectomy or, a, an, or laparoscopic surgery from a colorectal surgeon, what they'll do is they'll use a penetrative dyeing agent to dye the area in your digestive tract where that incision should be made. Oftentimes that dye doesn't fully penetrate the mucosa, it's hard to see. When you have a full HD video of the procedure, what the referring physician can do is share that directly downstream with the surgical team. The surgical team can watch the video and they can see the scope. They can actually backtrack the centimeters or millimeters from the cecum back down through the colon and say, okay, I know I need to make my incision here. Smaller incision, fewer complications, fewer bed days, better patient experience by and large as compared to what typically would take place where they can't find the incision, they try a few incisions, what they might do is actually roll in the endocart and do a colonoscopy while the patient's on the table to find it and then make the cut, or they'll just go tee and open up. And if you tee and open up, all of a sudden you're spending a week or two in the hospital, the complications rates, complication rates skyrocket, and we see a lot of loss in the system. So that's one salient use case. Another is just a peace of mind and patient education. In the early days, um, I had the opportunity to kind of to shadow a physician who recorded a video of a, of, of a patient who had received a standard colonoscopy, several hyperplastic, so uh, non-adenomatous or non-cancerous polyps were removed. And uh, he and his, the patient and, and his partner were very nervous uh, for, for adequate reason. Um, the physician was able to bring the video up on his phone while the patient was in recovery and calm, uh, calm his partner down by showing him, or showing her rather, what took place and saying, these are why these polyps are not something to worry about. We took them out anyway. You're good for the next five years. And I can share this video with you as well. Um, so a lot of it's for peace of mind. Um, and then with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, folks like my father appreciate having access to that footage because he's an international business person and he likes to have access to the most recent endoscopic video um, of his most recent procedure because if he has flair in Spain or Israel while he's here for work, it makes the conversation a lot easier about receiving acute care. Right, right, just here. And, and, and it actually protects the physician as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The number one thing that physicians 
uh, unfortunately tend to uh, misunderstand about video recording is that it, it will serve to illuminate the malicious activity they are performing. Now, in absolutely almost every case, physicians are not coming to work with malicious intent. And that is something you absolutely have to prove in the court of law in, I believe, 47 out of 50 states. So, okay, we're all good people here. We're trying, coming here to do our best. People do sometimes make mistakes, but other times those mistakes are not even your fault. They're due to an unfortunate reality of the situation. Uh, unfortunately, there are patients that might just have comorbidities that lead to a perforation and there's no physician in the world who would have been able to avoid perforating the esophagus or something like that. If you're able to compare the a priori evidence of what happened against the medical record and the pre-existing data of that patient, you can very quickly understand that there was no malicious activity and this was a really tough circumstance that can be worked out. Now, the one of the, I would say the most salient ways in which it protects the physician is just because it's there, it prevents folks from going into the courtroom. Litigation expense being the number one line item, that's what makes premium skyrocket. When you have this evidence, you're able to sit down with both parties, watch it before you start spending thousands of dollars an hour on, on attorneys and expert witness um, on litigation teams and make a determination about how to solve the problem without ever going to court in one way or another. And so that must make the insurers much more likely to uh, to pay for the service. Yes. So right now we're in the early days of reimbursement as it relates to video recording and AI. That said, on the on the MedMal insurance side, uh, we do have relationships with underwriters that actually provide premium adjustments for folks that use our capture tools for all of the work that they do. So they're able to actually receive a discount on their premiums because they see the value in in seeing, okay, here's a claimant, but we know it's not going to court. We're good. 15 to 20% year over year uh, med mal reduction right there. Right. Okay. So at some point you sort of uh, transferred your interest to one of clinical trials. Yeah. Um, still focusing on the patient, of course, but, but um, how did that change come about? Sure. So frankly, uh, COVID gave us large pause to figure out what we wanted to do to stay alive and become default alive. Um, it really showed and demonstrated to us that at the price point we were providing in the market to providers, we were likely not going to build a multi-generational billion dollar business selling our standard care platform direct to providers. We needed another avenue by which to bring revenue in the door and also provide more value. Um, I'm I'm really, really fortunate to say that we didn't have to do any layoffs throughout COVID. We were able to maintain the platform and actually do a number of remote installs and close some deals. But for the most part, revs went to incoming revs went to zero as it did for most folks like ourselves. Um, so during that time, we were able to sit down with some of our advisors, one of which is a uh, globally recognized IBD research physician at Penn, uh, Dr. Gary Lichtenstein, who also has a wonderful brother who's also an eminent uh, GI out of Boston Medical Center. Um, his kids go to Vandy, so love both of them. And um, Gary really started talking to us about the difficulties of recruiting patients into IBD clinical trials. And he was sharing with us that the average recruitment rate per site per trial is less than one patient annually. And so, of course, you can see, wow, not many patients are getting access to these frontline novel treatments, but it's also severely delaying time to market, which shareholders don't like, 
Um, now we have patients values we're dealing with. Of course, patients don't like it either. That's a great point. Um, but additionally, uh, we also knew that, you know, if you look at like a pyramid on either end of the pyramid, you have the inability for patients to access these treatments and enroll. And then you have the delay to get to market. But the top of the pyramid is the fact that these patients are actually there. This is a massive haystack and we need to find the needles in the haystack. It's a stats problem. It's a workflow problem. It is a behavior issue, but it is not because these patients do not exist. It is because we have not implemented mechanisms and workflows that both preserve the physician and the researcher's time, as well as elevate the, the patient to a place where it's savory for them to enroll in these trials. We're also looking in all the wrong places and relying on the wrong types of institutions to fill out these entire clinical trials. Now, you know, historically, Eastern Europe has been the highest recruiting. Um, they're a little bit more lax on their standards for letting people in. Ukraine and Russia are offline. They'll be offline for a very long time. So we need to do a lot to find that balance of patients elsewhere. Additionally, there's been a historic inability for us to engage the African-American population in clinical research. Horrible things have happened in the United States to the African-American population. I mean, Tuskegee just being one example. Um, and as a result, you know, we've done a ton of learning around diversity, equity, inclusion with a group called the Color of Thrones and Chronic Illness, which is a phenomenal not-for-profit industry society out of Atlanta um, that really is seeking to elevate um, the space that African-American and underserved populations take as part of clinical trials. The basic siren song here is that it's not that uh, these populations and, and these folks don't want to participate. It's just that we assume they don't want to participate because of all the bad things that have happened. And as a result, we've said, oh, they're just going to write us off. No, they radically want access. And isn't IBD especially uh, troublesome for that group? Yes, absolutely. And colorectal cancer rates manifest themselves at a higher rate among African-American males at right. younger ages than in Caucasians and Asians. So there's a tremendous need for this. Um, and unfortunately, people go decades without a diagnosis just because they aren't accessing or able to access the right kind of care. And they're on mesalamine or some other frontline treatment that just, oh, you have a tummy ache, just keep on drinking Pepto. And, you know, that is just no way to live. What I'm saying here is that we've continued to go to the well of middle class, to upper class, white and Caucasian male and female patients that have the ability, like I do, to drive to downtown Chicago and pick. Do I want to go to Hyde Park and, and New Chicago Medicine top five or Northwestern top five or Rush top 10? Pick of the litter. But what if you're a patient 45 minutes away in Orland Park and you're a perfect candidate? You're never going to hear about it. You're not riding on the L, so you're not hearing the advertisements or seeing them. You're probably not driving a car, so you're not hearing the radio ads either. How are we getting this access? How are we expanding those treatment mechanisms to other people? So the way in which that we, what we sat down and, and really kind of concocted was, wait a minute, we have these devices that don't care what color your skin is. We have these devices that don't care where you are. We put them wherever our providers go. Under our model, we don't really have a model where our providers tell us, hey, we just want to do this room and that room. We say, no, no, it's... The value is in ubiquity. So we put one on every single scope at every location. When that starts happening, and again, by virtue of all this M&A activity, hey, now we're out in the suburbs, we're out in rural areas. 
Um, we just did a partnership with a group called the Clinical Trials Network, which is a um, which is a group of thirty plus at this point, continuing to grow private practice gastroenterology groups that all perform clinical research. All of them are rural or exurban. So when we can see what's happening here, we can use artificial intelligence in the standard care environment to flag a potentially eligible patient for a clinical trial, send a notification to the clinical research coordinator at that site and say, hey, look, you should contact this patient and get them an Uber and bring them downtown or get them a ride or call them and have a conversation about this clinical trial. Someone that you otherwise would have come in for their normal everyday colonoscopy, gone home, never heard about a clinical trial, right on their way. Now we're flagging those people in real time, sending them to the people that can enroll them. And we're seeing um, a large increase in matriculation rates. What Right now our statistics are showing a 4X increase against baseline. So a patient per quarter per site per year as compared to one patient per year per site. Is there is there a financial uh, uh, reason for a particular group to uh, get more involved in, in clinical trials? A particular physician, yes. I mean. Yeah, and it's a delicate balance. Um, you know, in private practice, there is always, there's always been this concept of the ancillary revenue stream. Um, you know, one of the first areas you see that is pathology and anesthesiology, where groups will bring that in-house as opposed to contract it out because they can be profit centers. Um, those revenue streams become more and more important as reimbursement rates at the CMS level continue to decline. And so clinical research has been seen as one that can be a potentially profitable revenue stream for a given private practice, in addition to providing frontline treatments that their underserved populations otherwise wouldn't be able to afford, right. um, which, is really, which is really great. Um, that said, clinical research, in my opinion, is probably the most difficult uh, ancillary revenue stream to actually become profitable against because it does have a high-end um, capex to get started and a and a pretty high bar OPEX to, to be maintained given the necessity of staff, equipment, specific rooms, and the compliance concerns that come along with all of that, as well as the time spent getting in touch with sponsors, CROs, bringing in products like ours. So it's it's a tremendously difficult uh, thing to stand up. And as you're probably aware, there are multiple services startups that um, are seeking to go and basically have these platforms that they drop in on a private practice and, and create a research enterprise for them. Um, I jury is still out in my personal opinion as to whether or not those venture models actually will scale with venture funding. Uh, but uh, given how much of a services component as compared to tech enablement, they're really required there. But there are a lot of those organizations in play right now. So I noted a couple of uh, recent partnerships. Uh, mm -hmm. The first with uh, University Gastroenterology in uh, sure. Rhode Island. Can you tell us about yeah. that one? Yeah, uh, UGI is a great private practice group that's continuing to grow, and they've had a longstanding clinical research arm that's been very successful. Uh, they're helmed by physicians that are also academics uh, by training and by trade. They're, many of them are uh, the leading faculty at Brown just down the street. Um, and in an interest to not only improve their ability to provide the best care possible to their, the patients they see, but also enroll more patients into clinical trials, uh, we partnered with them as one of our marquee private practice locations. Uh, we really made a, not a pivot, but blew the doors open on private practice last year and really made that a focal point as we have begun to achieve radical scale in the academic landscape. But it was important for us to, to see the everyday patient. 
Um, we've had a longstanding relationship with several of their physicians that are very well connected, uh, Dr. Peter Margolis and Paul Ackerman, um, and are really excited to continue working with them and growing with them. And then there's a new partnership with uh, Alimentive and yep. uh, Satisfy. And, I, and yep. here I'm a little bit confused because sure. the Endpoints article that I read said that Alimentive, Canadian CRO, had partnered with Virgo for high-def video capture and was satisfied for its AI-driven smart score central reading tech. Yeah. For, yeah. Tell us what central reading means first. And sure. Then... So central reading is the process by which several experts will watch an endoscopic video and apply a score for the inflammation of that video in an IBD context using a clinically validated algorithm that being the Mayo score, the CDAI, or the UCEIS, there are many of them, but they're all very and highly subjective and reaching consensus becomes incredibly expensive. So what Satisfy has done is they've created a, a hopefully non-biased artificial intelligence-based tool set that will apply those scores automatically uh, to a video. Now, additionally, Alimentive is the market leader with respect to video capture as part of IBD clinical trials. They have 4,000 clinical trial sites globally. And what they need to do for every single clinical trial that they cooperate with is send a video recording kit to all of those sites across the world. Traditionally, they've been analog air-gapped laptop kits that are unfortunately prone to failure. And they're just not quite up to snuff for the 21st century. Uh, what we're doing, what we're incredibly excited about is actually replacing all of those kits with our modular kits across the world. Okay. So they'll now be able to use an internet connected streaming uh, device in order to capture those videos in a in more higher definition than they historically have been able to. Um, and just in a, a more easily transferred mechanism or way of doing things. Now where Satisfy comes into play here is they're now starting to experiment with using this AI driven central read through smart score. Um, we're incredibly excited about this three-way partnership, but we're also really excited about partnering with Satisfy as a solutions provider for us. Um, because we have focused so heavily on video recording and the ability to provide access to cloud technologies, uh, we seek a best of breed model where the best in the in we seek to partner with the best in the industry at whatever they do. Meaning okay. I'm not an AI developer. We don't have physicians on staff yet. So I'm not gonna be the one to say that we can create the best polyp identification tool in the world. Um, however, Satisfy has. Satisfy has a very robust portfolio of clinical decision support algorithms that are currently going through clinical trials um, and will be available in the market starting later this year. Um, and our partnership with them plans to actually load those algorithms on our devices such that we can provide access to those real-time artificial intelligence tools to our customer base. Um, and then one thing that I've become far more passionate about, particularly recently with the uh, the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, is, is just financial literacy among biotech yeah. founders. Um, mm -hmm. Typically, they come from academia and uh, from a scientific background, and, and yet you come from a deep financial background. And um, I, I you mentioned uh, today and, and in yeah. our prep conversation that uh, you also have kind of a uh, risk averse kind of personality. And maybe it, has that personality kind of been a ballast 
uh, for Virgo in terms of staying on the right track, do you think? Yeah. You know, um, yes and no. Now, I think Matt and I historically have done a really good job of respecting each other's opinions. And uh, quite frankly, I've always respected him as a CEO. And I've kind of stayed in my lane with respect to really letting him do the things a CEO needs to do. And uh, we were exposed at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, of course, we're okay now. And we have implemented a radical treasury diversification as a result. And we've all learned some things. To be perfectly frank, given um, the horse blinders you tend to put on when you decide to jump deep into the venture world, and frankly, my charter and I felt like my calling in life has been to sell this business to customers, to show the value that Virgo's products can provide and meet as many people as possible. And Matt has let me loose to do that. So with, you know, although I wish I could say, yeah, having done some corporate finance management consulting and M&A consulting, maybe I should have raised my hand and said, why, what does our treasury look like? Is it, why is it not diverse? I'll tell you right now, Tim, I don't think we would have done it any, any other way. Okay. Um, I, uh, I think that is symptomatic of just the energy in the startup world, as well as the advice you're getting from your investors and your advisors. Um, you know, SVB did have the reputation it did for good reason. And I still stand by the good work that they've done for startups that otherwise never would have gotten off the ground. Um, and we felt safe with our money sitting there. Um, you know, and lesson learned, uh, we're becoming a lot smarter to it. Um, but I think I would be, I would A, be disingenuous if I didn't say that we did the best we could given the time constraints and the other priorities in play. Um, startups won't make that mistake again at the inception of their startups. That's that's absolutely true. And it's a wonderful, that's a wonderful wind change to see. Just anytime there's, an event like this that happens, if you try to look for something good out of it, there will absolutely be some generational lessons learned that will make every startup better moving forward. And if it happened to me, I hope it doesn't happen to someone else down the line. And I think it will likely happen to far less people that start companies now. So as the guy who, and we need to be respectful of your time and, and uh, finish up here in just a minute, but as the guy who isn't the CEO, hmm. but has the financial background, is yep. there anything that, in terms of advice, that you might say to um, employees, uh, non-founding uh, employees, but mm -hmm. but still principals in in right. the, uh, in the organization, in terms of advice, uh, where to get more involved, uh, yeah, where to speak up, maybe or mm -hmm. anything like that, in terms of the financial. Uh, situation. Sure. I mean, I think you should always, no matter where you're working, fight for what you believe you deserve. Um, I think it's incumbent upon an employer to recognize value. And it's not ethical to say, well, you have equity, you have this many shares, but we're going to pay you below market rate. If that's going to happen, you need to be asking what those shares are currently worth. And you need to be asking to see a plan to see what they will be worth and what the exit strategy is. You need to, as founders, you need to be able to answer those questions and you need to feel good about answering those questions. If people are asking me those questions, I want to hire them more because they're more sophisticated and they understand the game that they're getting into. It's a classic startup thing to say, we're giving you 100,000 shares. That's their basis point. Right. You know, right. and you have to ask for the, for the true dollars behind it. Um, additionally, just making sure that you're asking the questions about, okay, well, 
what are additional ways for me to receive additional equity over time? Are there accelerated investing schedules? And so that's when you can really elevate the talent base as well and say, we're at a startup, we're here to build. I have never hired someone. And I don't think, looking at our current staff, I don't think there's anyone at Virgo that does not believe their job is to build, build, build. It is not, okay, I'm a customer success manager. I have my portfolio, make sure they're good. That is one part of the job. But through that lens, it's also looking to scale and to say, okay, well, what did I do today? And what can I implement as a result of what happened in that email that will scale this organization more successfully? And when folks are doing that, they're going to be promoted internally. They're going to have access to evergreen vesting schedules and evergreen grants. And we'll want to provide more equity in the business. I mean, the more equity that we can keep within the company, the better, right? Um, we want to create a generational company of friends, of, of people that are here for the right reasons and understand why we work so hard. And it doesn't really come from what you get in your paycheck every other week. Um, we have scaled to a point where we pay market rate salaries, but the expectation at a startup is to have the potential for you know an yeah, event that, that, yeah, yeah, down the road. And we want to ensure that everyone has that skin in the game. Um, and understands that myself and Matt have everyone's best interest in mind, right? And that we are going to be transparent with what those numbers are. And we're going to be transparent with the opportunities to collect more on those opportunities. That's good advice. In fact, I as, as you give it, I think of a friend outside the healthcare industry, but, but still in technology, um, uh, who could have used that advice uh, to yeah. his benefit. Ian, and don't take loans you. out against your equity. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ian, for, yeah. for your time today. I enjoy getting to know more about you and, and Virgo um, in particular. It's It's been an eye-opening experience and uh, I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank I you, Tim. I appreciate it. Uh, best of luck on future episodes and I'm excited for the drop. We'll talk Thank soon, you. I hope. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech Podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Dory's participation in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained herein can be construed as a recommendation or endorsement of any of the companies discussed. Tim Doherty also has no financial affiliation with any of the companies mentioned in this communication. Tim Doherty makes no representation that the information contained in this material is accurate and is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur.